This is the Show Up Show, helping coaches, service providers, leaders, and entrepreneurs to master showing up to build their brand, authority, and grow their business. Whether it's showing up on social media, in front of an audience, on a live interview, or an actual stage, this podcast is going to help you overcome visibility fear to confidently brand yourself as the authority in your industry. I'm Joanne Chan, aka the Confidence and Visibility Queen, and I am on a mission to share how I went from a nobody to the confident leader I am today, what I have learned and what I have done to build my brand and business from scratch and help you do the same so that you can make an impact in the world with the meaningful work that you do. Whether you are new to the business world or feeling unsure about public visibility or you want to be seen and heard in a way that doesn't feel icky but authentic to you, you will discover how to become visible in your own unique way and show up as the confident entrepreneur you have always dreamed about becoming. Now, it's time to get you show up and be confidently visible so you can easily attract more clients and opportunities for yourself. Joining us today is a data strategist at 173 Tech. His background is growth marketing and discovered that he had a bit of a knack for using data to power that and made a career switch. He's really interested in how people make decisions and what data can capture those thought processes and how companies can intertwine better because data is everywhere and businesses are struggling to figure out how best to capture, store and extract this data in a meaningful way to make a difference. He has an established way of working where he focuses on doing the simple things well and look to build from there. And his primary focus is working with the implementation team to ensure that they deliver value throughout the project and the overall strategic picture is not forgotten in the day-to-day task. So guys, help me in welcoming the strategy manager, Oliver Green. Hi, Oliver. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. What inspired you to change your career from growth marketing to becoming a data strategist? I think in life, um, you've got to pursue what you're interested in. You've got to find things that you're fascinated by and then spend time learning more about them. And for me, although there's always something new to learn in growth marketing, I really thought that data is an emerging um, thing. It's an emerging practice that people can leverage to a good effect to improve their marketing. And if I could learn a lot more about data and how it actually works, and that would really um, help me serve customers better. And it's just something I found really interesting and was already doing at a very basic level. And so I wanted to learn sort of how do you do that properly? I think a lot of marketers out there, they're probably doing some sort of data modeling. Um, They're probably taking data from various sources, putting it into an Excel sheet and then finding out the overlap in a manual way. Um, And the only difference between that and sort of proper data modeling is just the the way that you're doing it and doing it in a more robust way. So once I'd sort of seen, oh, I'm kind of doing the right thing, um, just in a a more amateurish way, I was like, okay, this is really interesting. Let's find out some more. This is really interesting. So given... Given what you just said, and given the abundance of data in today's world, whether it's business or marketing, what would be the best way to capture data, to store, extract data in a meaningful and efficient way? One of the 
the main problems that I see, especially with large companies, is they're really guilty of thinking that they've got big decisions to make and therefore they need more data to make that decision. And so they collect absolutely everything that they can about customers and they get analysis paralysis. They've got too much information they don't really need. Um, and instead of thinking of three things that have a lot of value to their business, they think of like 30 things that are probably useful down the road and maybe they'll need. Um, and so really at the core of what I do is thinking about the core questions that are going to make a difference to the journey, the customer journey for those businesses and focusing on getting free things that are 100% true and accurate and meaningful to the company versus a lot of information that maybe you won't need. Okay, so what are some of the, I would say, what are some of the information or data that are important and what are some of the information or data that are not important? Because a lot of my listeners, they are entrepreneurs and business owners as well. I think this will be something that is valuable to learn, like what is important and what is not important in terms of data collection. Yeah, really difficult question and mm. to, to answer because every company is so different and, and right. original. But I'll give you a good example. Yeah. Um, so, so Walt Disney, I'm a huge Disney fan. Um, I, I've got Disney Plus. I've been to the Disney parks. Um, I'm on a lot of their emailing lists mm -hmm. and I went to them and said, okay, you've got all this data on me. Why haven't I booked a holiday to Disney world? Can you figure it out? Come back next week and tell me. And when we looked at all my interactions, you know, I'm, I'm reading every email, I'm clicking on everything. I've got a subscription, all these things that put me in a bracket that said, Hey, Oliver is definitely going to book a trip. Um, but the reason I wasn't booking a trip was because my wife didn't want to go. Right. And so all this information that they had on me, they weren't asking the core question, which is, who are you going on holiday with? Because from Disney's point of view, there's a, a lot different messaging between a romantic trip with my wife versus a family vacation um, and or a business trip even to that. And so when you start to think about, OK, what are the core questions that are going to make a big difference to the way that we would communicate with Oliver? And what are the key questions that are going to get him down the customer journey a lot quicker? It becomes a lot easier to figure out, well, what data do I need to to get? Um, and if you don't have the data on whether I'm married or not, um, you know, you can ask the question of who do you want to go with? Put a little survey together. Who is your trip with potentially? And then you'll get that answer and you'll be able to segment a lot easier. Right. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Thanks for providing the example because it really helps me as well to see how data can drive a customer, you know, through your process or drive a lead to becoming a customer eventually, right, down the road. Because it's all about what makes a person tick, right? Because you can keep selling or promoting or marketing your product, but if it's to the wrong people, then they will never become your customers. Um, so I would say, yeah, would you say that the first step is by doing survey or customer surveys or uh, market research to see what your ideal clients, they really want to buy from you? Or what would you say is the first step? I think the first step is to understand that whatever journey you've got on paper or in your head is not real. That's not that's not true. Nobody designs these perfect journeys um, that happen in real life. Yes, go out and talk to your customers and get that market research data. That's a great starting point. Um, but just understand the fact that X doesn't always mean X. Just because somebody's come onto your website doesn't mean that they're going to buy. Just because somebody's put something in a cart doesn't mean that they've got high intent necessarily. Everybody is now very much aware of the fact that, hey, if I put something in a cart and then don't buy, I might get a discount. 
So people started to do that kind of behavior. And once you understand how people really are, are looking at your products and stuff and realizing that everybody's got very different intent um, that you can't always figure out, then you realize, okay, I need to be a little bit broader in the way that I'm analyzing that. I need to have um, a customer journey with four steps rather than 40 steps. You need to have really clear definitions on where people are on that list and not be able to sort of move somebody from one point to another without that data. So if you've got a sales team, for example, and you know they've got to hit a certain target, well, make sure that they can't move somebody into the next category unless they've met certain criteria and that kind of thing. Um, so I think the starting point is really appreciating the fact that customers don't think the way that you would like them to think because you're a company and you're always thinking about things from the point of view of your company. And hey, I want to sell somebody this and therefore the information I need is this. They have their own sort of category journeys in mind. They have their own ways of thinking. And so if you step back and think, well, how do I buy products? What do I actually do? Do I always go onto a website and buy straight away? No, of course not. Is the first thing that I buy always the end thing that I want to buy? Of course not. Typically, if you're dealing with somebody new, you buy a small thing. And then later on, once you've got a bit of trust in that company, you'll probably buy the big thing that you're in the category for. So I'd say the first step, and I know that's a bit of a long uh, meandering answer is really just to understand how do people really think versus how you think they think because you're a company and you're trying to sell them something. Yeah. Yeah. I remember talking to another expert on my show before and he mentioned something like, I mean, we all know that marketing, you have to try to be in your customer's shoes, right? And and really see things from their point of view instead of your point of view. I think that's what you're trying to say. I mean, that's, that's what my understanding of what you just said. And of course, it's very difficult, right? Uh, you know, saying uh, it's easier said than done because when you are in your business, it's really hard for you to really like step outside your business and see from another point of view. Um, so I think it's good to talk to some of your customers and really get to know what is in their mind instead of trying to guess, right? Like what is on their mind, just talk to them. I mean, I mean, that's that's what I've been doing. So you mentioned about sales team and... um you know, working with a team, how do you ensure that? Because I think this is something that you are also good at helping business with, right? How do you ensure that strategy vision, like the big vision is maintained amidst of day-to-day tasks or challenges of running a business or marketing, you know, and working with, you know, a team? I think I think it's always difficult. I think there's always been historically a gap between marketing and sales. And I actually think that data is the thing that can bridge that gap. Okay. Um, the problem typically is that sales teams, they have their own, they're the rock stars, you know, they get all the credit when something converts, um, they get all the glory um, and the marketing team, sometimes they don't get as much glory, but the marketing team don't have the same pressure as the sales team. So I think maybe step one is that the marketing team should do some sales and the sales team should do some marketing. So they need to swap jobs a little bit so that they can appreciate um, how the other one works and they can understand Firsthand, if you're talking to clients, okay, in a B2B environment, what those conversations actually like versus the marketing material that you have. So first step is that they should swap jobs a little bit. Uh, The second job task or thing in terms of data is make sure that you've got that data aligned so that uh, definitions are in black and white and cemented so that people can't talk about leads and one of them's talking about one thing and one of them's talking about another if there is a process, as I was talking about before, to get somebody down the the funnel that, that's really concrete and that you can't sort of, oh, yeah, this is a hot lead type of thing. It can't be cheated because that can really affect different metrics and the way that 
you are acting as a company if you think that there's a certain um, pivot point in your funnel that people aren't converting, but it's actually just that, you know, people are sort of getting them down there and they're not really at that stage yet. Um, and third, just in terms of day-to-day -day tasks versus overall goals, I don't think there's necessarily a right way of doing things. I think you just have to look at your team and ask them what works best for them and what's going to going to get them through the day and make sure that they don't forget all those things and find something that works for them and you it's, it's the only way everybody is different in the way that they approach their day-to-day -day tasks all managers have a, a weirdness in the way that they would like things done and so you just have to find that balance between the two obviously with sales and marketing the the key thing is automate as much data as possible um, so that you're not having to do a lot of admin right yeah it's really interesting the the first step is about swapping jobs you know the sales team go and do marketing and marketing's go and do sales call right i mean that is something that is really interesting but i, I would tend to think that sales people will be a lot better in marketing i don't know it's just a, a perception perhaps and um and why would you think it is it is i would say beneficial for a company or business to to swap tasks between their team so that what what is really the point of doing this like what is your intention what is the purpose I think the, the first one is it makes people appreciate the difficulties right. of somebody else's job. Um, it gives them an insight into the realities. Um, and this shouldn't just be like sales and marketing. It should also be like CEO should be on the front lines, uh, talking to customers on a regular basis, not a once a year type of thing, as we often see, you know, CEOs go to the, the front line of a weight rose or whatever and say, of customers for one day and think they, they know that life and they just don't. So it needs to be a, a semi-regular thing. Um, it's to to make people appreciate the difficulties of that job, give them insight on how they can work better as a team. Um, and ultimately, sometimes I actually disagree with you. I think marketing people and non-sales people can actually be very good salespeople because they don't have the pressure of selling. They don't need to close the sale. And it can sometimes give um, clients a bit more of a relaxed feel and they're mm -hmm. there to sort of help the customer more genuinely than salespeople in a weird way. Um, but yeah, it's mostly about helping people understand the processes and the difficulties so that then they can think, okay, how can I help this other team? And and it works the other way, of course. So the salespeople, often marketing people, when they're helping the salespeople, they get into this sort of world where they're making, uh, you know, sheets and marketing material on the fly and they need presentations very quickly. Um, and the sales team might not be very good at sort of passing through the information that's going to make a big difference. And so it gets into that very choppy waters of a lot of back and forth, which wastes time and energy ultimately. So how can the sales team also serve up information to the marketing team that they really need? Uh, yeah, I think I would agree with you on that as well, because yeah, it's all about not having the pressure to close someone or lead, right? I mean, sales is all about having a conversation with potential buyer that's it right and ultimately how do you lead them into making a decision whether the decision is a yes or no it's all about helping them empowering them to make a decision on their own and um so you know we talk about we don't really talk about a lot of jargons but i know data is something that is often seen as a daunting topic for those who without even me you know i don't have a technical background so how do you approach breaking down the barrier of making data more accessible and more relatable for non-technical people, um, business owners or team members, so that we all understand um, what you are trying to convey. I often say that it's easier to teach a marketing person SQL than it is to teach a data person marketing. 
And I, I really feel like we need more people coming who have got 10 years or whatever experience in their profession who then go on to be in data because the amount of times that I'm with the 173 tech team and we'll be looking at some marketing data and you know very quickly off the top of my head I'll be able to point at something and say oh the reason for this is this yeah. and it simply comes from knowing the practicalities around how to put together a campaign and what mm. what I'm seeing is the reason for it and that can only be through experience and if you don't have that experience there's always going to be a bit of a barrier for those data people so I think the first thing is like it'd be great if more non-people from a non-technical background want to go into data I think that's that's great the second thing is that there's so much talk out there for data people around translating things into English, you know, into for non-technical people and everybody talks about it. But I think people are very, very bad at this. You know, the same data engineers who talk about this or the same people who then start talking about data lakes and uh, MMLs and all of this kind of stuff. And as soon as you get into that level of complexity, people do not know what you're talking about. Their yeah. eyes will glaze over. And unless you are putting things into terms that they really understand, then it's going to be very, very difficult. But perhaps the biggest and easiest thing that data teams can do to sort of bridge that gap and help people understand is to put data in the t tools that people are already using. So instead of having a separate tool for visualization, like a dashboarding tool or another tool for this, make your models inside of a, a CRM. You know, if you've got a churn flag, put that straight into your CRM. Um, if you want to improve uh, an email list or segmentation, put that into your CRM. If you want to improve the algorithm for ads, then put that straight into Google. And you can do that with reverse ETL tools like uh, Census and HighTouch very, very easily. It's, it's just basically another ETL process where you're taking model data so the data team does all the modeling, but then they're feeding it back into uh, programs that people always use, which really lowers the barrier to entry for them. Yeah, I think it's all about integrating the data into their current system, right? Basically. Yeah, awesome. You know, AI has been big the last year, and I'm sure it's going to be bigger this year and onwards, right? So how do you see AI and data? like Because AI to me and to a lot of people, it's all about research and data, right? Because it's all about collecting data and then just um, uh, giving it to you. So how can we use, how can we leverage AI to maximize or optimize our marketing effort to a more sustainable growth in terms of, you know, uh, I mean, in the long term? I have sort of a two-part answer to this. So the first thing is we've had a lot of people asking us about data. A lot of C-suite boards have sort of said, hey, let's do some AI or let's do something along that line. And I have to be honest with you and say like 95% of companies are not ready for it. They do not have the clean data structure to leverage it in a meaningful way. Um, they don't have the processes in place to, to leverage it at all. Perhaps they could use an existing tool and try and feed in their data and do something like that. But in terms of companies making their own uh, data tools or AI tools, yeah. It's not happening today, and I don't think it's going to happen in the short term, the next couple of years. Um, a lot of people are under some really misinformed views about how easy these things are, and especially with like large language models. I've had loads of people ask me about chatbots and making those, and although we can do those things today, uh, people are under the impression that with machine learning, you just set it going and it will learn very quickly, and, and I'm like, well... Are you smarter than a machine? To which most people answer yes. 
if I gave you a book on Mandarin, would you be able to learn Mandarin overnight? No. Okay, so why would a machine that's dumber than you be able to learn language that quickly? You know, these things are not that easy. Um, longer term, of course, there will be tools to help you develop all of these things, and they will get easier and easier in the next 10 years. But I'm saying for the next couple of years, most companies that are listening today cannot leverage AI and probably shouldn't um, because they'll do a bad job of it. In terms of how marketing teams can use AI, uh, there's a really interesting thing that's happening at the moment in terms of third parties and walling off of the internet. So all of the major players, uh, Google, all the ad, anybody who serves ads, basically, they want to wall off the internet and basically you have to pay them to get from customers. And if not, you're not gonna be able to get a full customer journey. So for example, Wix. Uh, Wix is a DIY company in the UK, and they find that a lot of people, they go to DIY stores when they're moving house. Makes perfect sense. So they have a third party data that they're teaming up with um, that is house moving. So when somebody moves house, they can then target ads to those people. Mm. Now, from a strategic point of view, that means that a lot of their new customers are tied into a third party, which at any moment could say, hey, actually, this agreement doesn't work with us. Maybe some new privacy rules come in place that it doesn't work for them. So in the short term, what I see is that content is becoming extremely cheap. It's mm -hmm. really easy to make images and articles and all of that kind of stuff. So I see a lot of companies strategically, it makes sense for Wix to make their own sort of house moving tips websites to make their own referral sites for maybe man in vans and that kind of thing. So I'll see, think we'll see a lot of third party websites that are basically just there to collect information in a more um, friendly way for companies. There are so many trends out there. What, okay, since we just embarked on a brand new year, what emerging trends that you see, because you have so many years of experience in this industry, in the world of marketing, I would say in 2024, and how can we as business owners stay ahead of the curve to remain competitive in the industry? There's sort of two major things. And the, the first one is that there's a competitive edge is going to start shifting in the new year. So a lot of large companies, they have a lot of silo data and really legacy systems that don't work together. And a lot of startups have been able to really disrupt industries because they can move a lot faster. They can implement analytics. They can get a modern data stack pretty much from scratch and within sort of three to six months. And so they've got that competitive advantage over these more established players. Um, but that's going to be changing. The number one thing we saw last year was companies migrating to a modern data stack. And so I think that that should worry a lot of smaller companies, a lot of challenger brands that, hey, your competitive advantage that you've maybe had for the last five years is going to start going away. And we're going to see large companies be able to leverage that a lot more easily, although there's still probably another couple of years in which they'll have to migrate a lot of their complexity uh, over. And then in terms of sort of marketing, obviously CAC has been rising across the board for pretty much every industry. I think it's artificially inflated, which is my radical opinion. Um, everybody, you know, Google and all the ads providers, they took advantage of the pandemic and they artificially in, in, inflated their prices for uh, PPC and for clicks and all of that kind of thing. And so we've seen CAC massively rising. Um, and in many ways, you don't have control over that. You know, you just have to either A, pick some less familiar ads uh, platforms to work with, find those niche audiences that you can get to. And although you can optimize your pages and everything, probably the thing to concentrate is 
first-party data. So if you can optimize your own metrics around customers and lifetime value and figure out exactly those people who you can serve better, you can feed that back to your ad platforms and it really radically improves your performance on there, but only if you've got the first-party data. So we do that for a lot of customers and they typically save about 20% and up on their, their ad cost. There was one client we saved, I think it's 300,000K a year on their ads just by looking at their first party data, finding those high value, lifetime value customers, which aren't always obvious from a first click or a first interaction, and then sending it back to the likes of Google. Yeah, I wanted to ask for like your tips, but I think you have just given us that, which is, you know, to optimize your 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 step pages. I think there's there's not as much to be right. gained from optimizing pages and optimizing keywords. It's a part of the game. But I think the biggest lever for the next couple of years is high, uh, LTV, so lifetime value of customers. Um, when you think about ads in general, most of the time you're basing the performance of your ads based on the first purchase or the first click. So somebody, you know, Oliver comes through, he buys something normally quite small. If it's my first interaction with you, he spent 10 quid, the ad cost two pounds a click or whatever, we've made eight pounds. But that's not really true. My lifetime value with you is over years. If you can keep me as a customer, if I buy more, then potentially I'm in a much higher category. And so the two pounds that you've spent initially is worth a lot more. Um, and so if you look at lifetime value versus your first click, you'll get a much more accurate um audience that you're targeting to and you'll decrease the cost of your ads yeah yeah that's so true lifetime value customer because when we run ads like most people don't run ads because they see as i have to have you know i have to upfront you know make an investment right to run ads i don't have the budget to run ads but when you look at it this way like what you just said right it's about measuring the lifetime value of a customer like maybe you lose money upfront but eventually it's actually a profitable campaign right if you were to measure it maybe the customer bought something from you six months later it's not the first click right but eventually they became your customers and that ad campaign actually became profitable so yeah um is there anything else that you really want to share or talk about perhaps i didn't ask you didn't let you for coming to our show today i i think just on the algorithms as well so okay. if you're worried about losing money on ads my advice is to have a campaign that is there to lose money. Spend a really small amount of money and have it ongoing. I'll tell you why. So if you're spending like, and I'm talking like 10 pounds mm. a month, really, really small, let the algorithm learn who your audience is and the results will improve dramatically. So I, I have a band in my spare time. We ran ads. The first week that we ran ads, we had 28 people click. On the fourth week, we had 328 people click. Nothing changed on the ads. They weren't very good, to be honest with you, the, the particular ads. Just the algorithm got smarter. And so if you want to decrease your cost, run something over a long period of time, keep it on, spend a really small amount of money, sort of £100 over a year, and then when you're ready to up your budget, the algorithm will know your audience and you can really increase that with a bit more confidence around, I'm going to get the results because I can see that the algorithm knows who to target now. Well, that's really interesting. Thanks for sharing that tip, I would say, because it's something that I'm not personally aware of, right? I ran ads before and based on my experience, I learned that when the click or, you know, the CPC or whatsoever, it's not, it's not that great. We will change the copywriting, the headline, you know, things like that, right? To make it better. But now that I learned that, just learn from you that we have to keep it going and let the algorithm pick up and 
you know, find a better audience for us, right? For the campaign. Um, is that is that right? Yeah, certainly. That's probably almost a separate campaign that you're running. Um, oh, okay. Right. Okay. So when you're ready for that main campaign that you're going to be running and you really want to think about you're optimizing every element of that keywords mm -hmm. and landing page and all of that kind of stuff, you have this other ads that's running basically just to train uh, the program there that you've not spent too much money on. And then when you're ready for a full campaign where you really want to spend time and make sure it's right, you've at least got over that learning hump for the ad platform. Right. Well, that is um, really uh, very insightful. Thank you so much for sharing that. Now, uh, tell my listeners where is the best place to find you and connect with you um, uh, with the Instagram website or LinkedIn, like where's the best place to find you? Yeah, find me on LinkedIn. I think my name comes up. I'm Oliver Gwynn at 173 Tech or visit 173tech.com um, and fill out in a, a contact form and I'm probably the person you'll end up speaking to. Awesome. All right, guys, I hope you learned a lot from today's episode from our guest today. If you have any questions, you know, you can always leave a comment below and reach out to us and we will get back to you for sure. And uh, if you want to learn how to launch a podcast, build a raving fans community around your podcast, you can come to our virtual dinner party where you get to meet me, my guests, my community, my clients to mastermind and brainstorm all creative ideas. It's free for you to attend and there's a choice of dates and time. You just need to go to a show note below. You will find all the links there, including I will put all um Oliver's link as well in the show note below. So make sure you visit the show note below and check out all the resources that we have for you today. And until next time, keep showing up. Success doesn't show up for you until you show up and pursue your own success. Hi there, thanks for listening today and I would love to meet you at our virtual dinner party. Once or twice a month, we come together as a community in a safe and empowering environment to help and support one another in our entrepreneurship journey. So what is a virtual dinner party? A VDP is not a networking event, it's not a teach event and it's not a webinar where you don't get to talk. I want you to imagine the VDP being a cross between a mastermind, speed dating and a Tony Robbins event. And most importantly, there is nothing for sale. My goal for you in attending our VDP is to help you build real confidence, gain more visibility for yourself and build a deeper connection within our community. What is the catch? There isn't one. If you are a coach, consultant, entrepreneur or podcaster, come and join us for a truly unique and world-class experience. And there is a choice of dates and times for you to attend. To ISVP, just send me a DM on Facebook with the word VDP now.